Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Guess what, Will? What's that, Mango? So sushi's obviously everywhere now, but do you remember when we were kids how exotic it was? Oh, definitely. In first grade, I'd, I'd done this report on Tokyo, and I remember the idea of eating raw fish just seeming like so unimaginable to me. But that same year, one of my friends got up in front of the class, and he told everyone he'd been to Japan, and he'd actually tried sushi, and he claimed it was delicious. <laughs> I'm guessing everybody else thought that was pretty disgusting. Yeah, no one believed him. Like, they thought it was gross, and, you know, it's raw fish. So being first graders, everyone was yelling, like, yuck and gross <laughs> and just shaking their heads in disbelief. And then, like, this one girl raised her hand and asked him, but what's sushi actually tastes like? And he just smiled and said bubblegum. <laughs> <laughs> so for years, I actually thought like maybe sushi does taste like bubblegum. But of course, now I do know what it tastes like and sushi's everywhere. But it made us wonder, how did we start eating these delicious fish rolls in the first place? And how did it come to America? And are you really supposed to be eating sushi with your hands instead of your chopsticks? Let's dive in. Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend Mangesh Hatikater. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, just chowing down on a spicy tuna roll. Look at the thing. It's just drenched in soy sauce. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. Tristan, why are you using a spork? Oh, man. He's got the wasabi mix in there, too. All these problems. <laughs> but that actually brings us to what today's episode is all about. And that's an intervention for Tristan. About time. Yeah. No, actually, I'm kidding. All right. <laughs> so there's a lot of common misconceptions about sushi out there. And, and not just about how to eat it, but how it's made, where it comes from, and even what's in it. So on today's show, we're going to take a good hard look at what we think we know about sushi and see if we can set the record straight on one of America's most popular and misunderstood finger foods. 
Yeah, well, why don't we start right there? Because that's amazing to me. Sushi is actually a finger food. And that's actually the preferred way to eat it because sushi chefs like to loosely pack their sushi. That way it can fall apart in your mouth and the flavors can mingle better. The problem is so many Americans are hung up on eating sushi with chopsticks that chefs in the U.S. actually uh, pack their sushi tightly. And that's how it'll hold together when grabbed with the sticks. Hmm. It seems like such a small thing, but a lot of people actually shy away from sushi because they think you have to use chopsticks to eat it. Really? Still? So Americans still don't like chopsticks? I kind of felt like we'd gotten over that by this point. Yeah, apparently not. So I, I was looking at this market research from uh, YouGov, and they conducted the survey on chopstick proficiency. This was back in 2014, and it found that 77% of Americans prefer to use a knife and fork over chopsticks when they eat Asian food. And most of that reason is that Americans are just not good with chopsticks. The survey claimed that uh, 34% of the country rates its proficiency with chopsticks as fair or better, while 43% related as uh, not very good or terrible. Wow. And so what about the other quarter of the country? They haven't even tried chopsticks. Oh, okay. That explains it. <laughs> the good news for them is that uh, counter to most people's thinking, it's perfectly proper to eat most kinds of sushi with your fingers. And the only exception is sashimi. You know, sashimi is those thinly sliced pieces of fresh raw seafood, and those are served without rice. And because raw seafood can be a little slippery to handle with your hands, uh, using chopsticks is the way to go for those. But maki rolls or nigiri... You can use either chopsticks or your fingers for those. All right. So we're breaking down the barriers on today's show. And, and actually, I feel like another big deterrent for people who don't eat sushi are, are some of the words that you just mentioned. You know, the proper terms for different kinds of sushi. And obviously, these are Japanese words that anybody can look up. But, you know, for people that just want to eat lunch and not have to learn a new language while doing it, that that unknown vocabulary can actually be a little bit intimidating. Yeah, but if you know the definitions, it isn't intimidating at all. So, like, the word sashimi literally means body cuts. Hmm. So the whole dish is right there in its name. Right. And some of the other terms are, are less literal, but they still give these details that can help you distinguish between the different kinds of sushi. So take nigiri, for example. It's the kind of sushi that consists of a small mound of rice with a slice of raw fish on top. And the word nigiri actually translates to grip or grasp. So again, in a way, that's the whole dish, right? The slice of fish grips the rice mound. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with uh, another kind of sushi, the maki roll. And this is what most Americans picture when they think of sushi. You know, it's the colorful circles of fish and veggies, and that's surrounded by sushi rice, and then this outer layer of seaweed. And the small pieces are cut from this longer cylindrical rolls that are formed using, I'm sure you've seen it, but those like woven bamboo mats. Mm -hmm. Those are called makisu. And you can probably guess the mat is where the maki gets its name. All right. So there you go. The most common types of sushi explained. You've got body cuts, gripping fish, and mat rolls. <laughs> and actually saying it out loud, I can kind My of tell why. My mouth is watering. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's probably best that we stick with the Japanese words. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you, you know what I just realized? We're only a few minutes into this discussion, and we've already messed this up. What do you mean by that? Well, we've been talking about sashimi as if it's a kind of sushi, but... Like I mentioned earlier, sashimi doesn't actually include rice, so by definition, it can't be sushi. Oh, wow, you're right. But at least the mistake gives us a chance to talk about what's maybe the biggest misconception about sushi, and that's that the word itself means raw fish. I mean, it's 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 an easy mistake to make because we think of raw fish as like the defining component of the cuisine. But in actuality, sushi is all about the rice, and and that's what the word really refers to. It's that sour-tasting rice. Yeah, and if you look at the history, you can actually see why rice deserves the top billing. This is another thing most people don't know, but the earliest form of sushi actually comes from China and not Japan. 
It was later named uh, narizushi, and it started as a form of food preservation back in the 3rd or 4th century BCE. It's different from the fresh fish we know today. Narizushi was actually made by packing a wooden barrel with all these layers of raw and salted fish and, and then cooked rice. And then they'd set this heavy weight on top and you'd let the whole thing ferment for up to a year. Right. And, and this worked just like with any other fermentation. You've got friendly bacteria that fed on a substance. In this case, it was starch and the rice. And then it produced lactic acid in turn. Now, the resulting acid is what helped preserve the fish by slowing the growth of harmful bacteria, you know, that would otherwise cause it to rot. And the technique is thought to have first been used by farmers who lived along the Mekong River in Southeast Asia. So during the rainy months, the river would sometimes flood and the water would wash tons of carp into these nearby rice paddies. And they didn't want this carp to go to waste. And so the farmers came up with a new way to store the fish until they were needed. Mm. I mean, it's pretty ingenious, but what's funny to me about this proto-sushi or early sushi is that nobody actually ate the rice. (laughs) And despite the crucial role it played in the fermentation process, the rice was just tossed away afterwards, and it was only the fish that was eaten. I mean, we are talking about super sour year-old rice, so I I can't exactly (laughs) blame them for not eating it. Yeah, but the fish wasn't in its prime either. So I I actually asked Gabe what it tasted like, and he was saying after a year in the barrel, it would morph into this pungent, gelatinous, almost cheese-like substance. (laughs) I mean, it couldn't have been any better tasting than all that sour rice. That is disgusting. But, you know, if it makes you feel any better, the Japanese did start eating both the fermented fish and the rice sometime after sushi made its way to Japan. And this was, I think, around the ninth century. So Buddhism was spreading throughout the country at the time, and fermented sushi helped meet that growing desire for a protein source, you know, that that would fit into their meatless diet, even if it did taste pretty sour, I guess. Yeah, so I I read that the sour taste was actually a plus for the Japanese at that time because the rice vinegar industry had just taken off. This was in the 13th century, and people actually came to appreciate a little sour flavor in their cuisine because vinegar was so popular in the markets. In fact, when cooks found a faster way to ferment and cure all that fish without the use of rice, Japanese started adding vinegar to their sushi rice just so it wouldn't lose that sour taste. All right, so so by this point, we've got non-fermented rice seasoned with vinegar, just like the kind used in sushi today. So what about the fish, though? When does it go from being pickled to being raw like we're used to it now? So raw fish sushi didn't actually become the norm until after refrigeration became such a big thing in the 20th century, but it did start to crop up in some places during the 1800s. So at that time, Tokyo, or Edo as it was called back then, was fostering the next generation of sushi and all these mobile food stalls that had begun to crowd up in the streets. And this one man, his name was Hanaya Yohai, he set himself apart from the crowd by offering what's often considered the first example of modern nigiri sushi. So Yohai has a great story. He opened his stall near a bridge in Tokyo that crossed the Sumida River. And not only was that area highly trafficked, but it was easy access to all this fresh fish. And in fact, the fish Yohai served was so fresh that there was no need to ferment or cook it. All he had to do was cut it into slices and hand press them onto mounds of vinegared rice. And the process took minutes rather than the hours or days that his competitors were, you know, spending curing fish. The Japanese public fell immediately in love with it, and they loved the fresh taste, but they also loved the fast prep time, and his business just exploded. And all these years later, it's still the most popular kind in Japan. Well, I, th- I think what's most surprising to me about the story is hearing that sushi was a common street food in those early days. Like, we have this idea in the U.S. of sushi being this you know, really fancy, upscale cuisine, all these traditions and rules that have to be observed. Mm-hmm. And it's a kind of stigma that can make sushi feel inaccessible to some people. So. 
It's actually pretty cool to hear about its humble origins. Yeah, the the story's helpful in making it more approachable, but let's be honest, a big reason that people view sushi as such a posh food is the price. Yeah. I mean, you can definitely find rolls with imitation crab and other kind of filler everywhere from grocery stores to uh, gas stations to airports, but anything with actual sushi-grade sushi is going to cost you. Well, that's definitely true, and I, I know that's the case even in Japan, where rising costs have made sushi much more of a special occasion food than, than maybe it once was. Yeah, I, I don't think the average Japanese citizens would dispute that quality sushi is pricey and worth the price, but the bigger sticking point for them would actually be what Americans do to a food that costs so much. Because I, I'm not sure if you've noticed, but we don't tend to respect sushi the way it ought to be. I saw you giving that side-eye glance to Tristan on that. <laughs> I, fork. I don't want to pick on him anymore, but I will mention as a general public service announcement that you, you're really only supposed to use a tiny bit of soy sauce with your sushi, you know, so you don't drown out the other flavors. Most Japanese sushi chefs actually brush a little bit of their own homemade sauce right onto each piece of fish before it's served. And the same thing happens with wasabi. You know, when, when needed, chefs will include some fresh wasabi between the fish and the rice. Of course, none of this really happens in the U.S. because chefs know that American sushi eaters like to add those condiments themselves, you know, often to excess. And I've told you the story about my father-in-law when we were at a restaurant one time years ago and he just had this brain lapse and for some reason was thinking that it was avocado. Took a big <laughs> bite of wasabi. He said, oh, dear Lord, and then turned bright red. But uh, Yeah, my daughter did the same thing. She's like, guacamole. Yes, <laughs> yeah, that is on fire. <laughs> But, I mean, it makes sense, right? I, I kind of wish we did it the Japanese way, and it seems like a better system than taking this, like, big stack of sushi and dipping it in uh, soy sauce and having it all fall apart. That's just so messy. Definitely. You know, I, I did pick up a few tips on the subject, though, from Jiro Ono. You know, the world-famous sushi chef was sure. in the documentary that Netflix seemed to suggest to everyone in the world. <laughs> and He says that the best way to apply soy sauce after the fact is by dipping a piece of pickled ginger and then dabbing it across the top of the fish. <laughs> I feel like that's a sushi life hack. Yeah, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> you know, he, he also has some solid advice for people who want to eat nigiri using chopsticks. He suggests they think of the sushi as a portable shrine. Place your chopsticks parallel to the tray as if they're the shrine's carrying poles and lift up the sushi by grasping it along its sides. If you grasp it through its middle with your chopsticks, it will surely fall apart. I love that he references shrines uh, carrying poles. Like everyone knows that shrines should be carried with poles. Right, but, exactly. Uh, um, but still, that that's a great tip for Americans. So what do you say we talk a little bit about how America developed a taste for raw fish in the first place? Yeah, and to help with that, let's call up Trevor Corson. So he wrote an amazing book called The Story of Sushi. And I'm pretty sure he can tell us how it made the trip stateside. Our guest today is the author of a fascinating book called The Story of Sushi, an unlikely saga of raw fish and rice. Trevor Corson, welcome to Part-Time Genius. Thanks for having me on. Now, Trevor, this isn't the first book you've written that was related to sea life. Your first book, which got a ton of critical acclaim, was The Secret Life of Lobsters. So I'm curious, what, what turned your interest towards sushi in writing this book? Uh, I had gone to Japan just a kind of by accident when I was a high school student on this uh, summer scholarship that I just happened to get. And it was I went and lived with a homestay family. And uh, so I, had, I always had that experience. It was always interesting in Japan. I, I ended up going back later as a college student and studying Japanese language and living in Japan for a while. Um, so, uh, and the thing that had happened before I went to Japan the first time, this was 1986. And so... 
sushi was still very unusual at that time. And uh, my high school teacher said, oh, you're going to Japan this summer on the scholarship. The thing is, you're going to have to know, be able to eat raw fish. You're going to have to know how to eat sushi. And so there was like one sushi restaurant in town, and my teacher bought a box of takeout sushi, brought it to school, and made me eat it, like sit down in her <laughs> office and try eating it to prepare me for this. And, and I thought, wow, here is the cuisine that is truly repulsive. And like, I was like horrible. how am I going to survive this experience? But the funny thing that happened was when I got to Japan, I was living with this homestay family, and uh, they took me out to their local sushi bar, and I realized what the whole experience was at that point, that it was like this amazing, really fun social experience where you didn't order. You sat at the bar with a bunch of other people from the neighborhood, and the, and the sushi chef was like this friendly neighborhood bartender, and he'd just like start giving you these amazing things that you didn't know what they were, and you sort of explain a little bit about each one and this kind of series of, of small surprises that occurred as you sat at the sushi bar and interacted with the chef and everything. And what what troubled me was, like, when I would try to eat sushi back in the States after that, it was never the same. Like, I was never having that experience that had made sushi so wonderful. So I, like, decided to make it my mission after this lobster book, you know, did so well. My publisher was like, well, can you do anything else on seafood? Because this is clearly <laughs> resonating. And, uh, wow. and so I thought, well, what about, what about sushi? And that's how the sushi book got started. And I tried to, like, uh, tried to educate American readers. Um, you know, what the Japanese sushi experience is actually like. It's very, very different. I mean, the whole history of sushi and the experience is very different from, from what we tend to think of in the U.S. Yeah, and, and we touch a little on that in this episode. But uh, I, I've heard you talk about the fact that we what we consider as valuable in sushi has changed over the years. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, this is so fascinating. And, and I didn't really realize this uh, either until I started digging into the historical research. Um, but if you ask uh, any, you know, like Jap- traditional Japanese sushi chef today, they'll tell you that like bluefin tuna is the the pinnacle of of authentic Japanese sushi, especially the the belly cuts, the toro, right? That mm-hmm. sort of melt in your mouth sensation. The weird thing is when I started looking into the history of this, the if you went back a hundred years um, in early 1900s, for example, sushi was very very different. The traditional Japanese sushi that they were eating at that time. Uh, tuna was considered a garbage fish. You would never eat tuna. You could possibly <laughs> avoid it. It was, it was considered like very uh, low class. And um, if you had to eat tuna, they would like they would marinate it in soy sauce or bury it in the ground. Like do all these things to like try to get rid of the flavor of the tuna. And at the time, wow. what what actually was considered desirable sushi ingredients were. Um, smaller fish that had lighter flesh, like the silvery or lighter uh, flesh fish that had more of a like a kind of a crunchy texture almost to eat. Uh, a lot of shellfish were considered very desirable. Flounder and sea bream were considered like the pinnacle of fine sushi, especially the kind of huh. chewier parts of, of the flesh. So it, it's completely different. The, the culinary values have completely changed over the past century. And has this changed the way you think about sushi when you're in a restaurant and ordering it for yourself? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, when you sit down at the sushi bar, a lot of chefs or, you know, if we, often we just order what we're used to. We order the usual um, suspects, the, 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 the tuna belly, the salmon, the yellowtail, the uh, sweet eel. And what I learned in my research is that none of those is a traditional Japanese sushi ingredient. Uh, those are all recent inventions. And trying to understand this, I realized 
that the bluefin tuna um, is it was an invention of, of the Japanese um, airlines in the 1970s. They they were uh, flying their planes full of Sony Walkmans over to the U.S. and flying them back empty. And they were trying to find something they could put in the planes on the way back. And they got the <laughs> idea that, well, maybe you know, there's some kind of like seafood in North America that people will eat. And, and it turned out there wasn't. Like, they even looked into tuna, and no one would eat. No one ate tuna. Like, maybe you'd open a can occasionally. But they were trying to get a, mar- a tuna as possibly uh, an ingredient they could fly back and sell in Japan. And no one was eating it, and everybody thought the idea was ludicrous. So it was, and my, my colleague Sasha Isenberg, a journalist who kind of um, exposed this story, it was a cargo executive at Japan Airlines who, who, who like designed and built the, the cryogenic freezer containers and who developed the market that kind of turned bluefin tuna into a, a global sushi ingredient that they started marketing and selling. And that's why we have it today. And that's why everybody believes it's a traditional Japanese sushi ingredient, but it's not at all. And so once I realized this, I started asking the chefs, well, what, what would you have, you know, what's the more old-fashioned other sushi ingredients besides tuna? And there's all these other things that they know how to prepare and serve that are so interesting to eat. So to answer your question, I just don't eat bluefin tuna anymore at all. In fact, I find my sushi eating experience has become much more interesting as a result because there's all these other local um, seasonal ingredients and smaller fish and shellfish and weird things that are just much more fun and interesting. And there's some chefs who are starting to get back to, to that now, and it's really cool to see happening. That's really that, that's really fascinating. You know, speaking of traditional sushi, could you tell us the story behind the California roll and whether or not you can get them in Japan? <laughs> yeah, the California roll. We kind of assumed that it was it was uh, obviously because of the name that it was invented specifically to. Um, you know, get Americans interested in eating sushi. That's sort of true, but the evolution of the California roll was, was kind of happened over time. It wasn't uh, immediate. And actually, it started out as uh, a, a um, menu item for actually Japanese businessmen and stuff in Los Angeles. So it did originate in California, but it wasn't for American customers. The problem was at that time, just building off the the tuna story, it was very hard to get fatty tuna in uh, Los Angeles in the um, you know seventies and eighties when when sushi started to become more popular there. Uh, and so one of the sushi restaurants in Little Tokyo in Los Angeles. Um, because they didn't yet have the ability to kind of fly these uh, tuna fish all over the world, they thought, well, how can we kind of recreate that fatty um, tuna belly sensation? And they realized that they, California may not have had a lot of fatty tuna, but they had a ton of avocados. <laughs> so they started experimenting, mixing avocado in with different kinds of fish to see if they could create the same sensation you would get when you ate fatty tuna belly. I tried, uh, um, I think, shrimp and a couple other things first, and finally, finally somebody settled on crab meat and avocado as being the best sort of faux substitute for, for tuna belly. So that was the original introduction of avocado into sushi. Um, but the real innovation that turned that created the California roll we know today uh, wasn't until someone invented what we what is called known as the inside-out roll. And this is the typical sushi roll that we see in America all over the place today. Um, we don't even realize 
because it's so ubiquitous. But if the rice is on the outside of the roll, like a California roll, that's actually not even at all part of, of Japanese sushi tradition. That was a really key American invention because apparently Americans at first found the idea of eating seaweed paper somehow a turnoff. But in Japan, yeah. <laughs> the seaweed rolls, they were always made with the, the seaweed paper around the outside. And actually the whole point of it was that the seaweed paper, the nori, was was wonderful to eat that way because it was crunchy. So you have this crunchy outside and this soft rice on the inside. And that was the whole point. But Americans wouldn't eat that because we were freaked out by seaweed paper. So they flipped it inside out, put the seaweed on the inside where we couldn't see it. Totally defeats the purpose because now the seaweed's all soggy and wet and not crunchy anymore. But it got Americans eating wow. it. So it was a combination of bringing avocado into the mix and then flipping the roll inside out that ultimately resulted in the California roll. Oh, that's really interesting. I'm curious, has any of that American influence made its way back to Japan and the way they make sushi now? Right, yeah, yeah. The other part of your question is that, yes, it has. And um, <laughs> when I was uh, researching this in Los Angeles, um, you'd have Japanese tourists coming over and getting all excited to order, you know, um, all the different weird American rolls and uh, Thanksgiving roll and cheesesteak roll. <laughs> so now it's, it's been it's been actually so intriguing to Japanese customers to have this American style sushi that it has now been re-imported to Japan, and you'll find all kinds of um, weird American style uh, sushi rolls being sold in Japan now too. And um, they tend to call it, uh, perhaps euphemistically, creative sushi. <laughs> it's like a, it's like a thing. Non-traditional <laughs> sushi is the creative sushi. Uh, and also weird kinds of sushi that we don't even have in the U.S., um, you know, like corn and hamburger sushi, and just like it's completely open season with all kinds of weird things now. Well, this has been fascinating, and I hope all of our listeners will check out your book, The Story of Sushi, An Unlikely Saga of Raw Fish and Rice. Trevor Corson, thanks so much for joining us on Part-Time Genius. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. 
tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. You're listening to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the surprising history and little-known secrets that make up the sushi experience. Okay, Mango, so we've already covered sushi's ancient origins and how it was first brought to America during the 1950s and 60s. So now we should talk about some of the differences between the sushi cultures of Japan and the U.S. Sure. So we mentioned before the break that many Americans view sushi eating as the solemn experience, like they're in some kind of food temple and are about to take part in a religious rite or something. But what I found during my research is that most of it is in our heads and that people in Japan actually have this much more relaxed approach to sushi. For example, we we have a lot of upscale sit-down sushi restaurants in the U.S., and we peruse menus with, I don't know, 20 or 30 different rolls and make our selections, and then we just wait for the food to be brought to our tables. But in Japan, most sushi is just served at a bar, and the menu choices change based on what the chef has on hand. Oh, well, so, so sushi choices are actually more limited in Japan? I, I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, so Japanese sushi bars don't share that American expectation of variety. Instead, they concentrate on keeping the quality super high for the few items they do have. And part of the reason for that difference is that the seafood in Japan is largely caught locally. So if a certain kind of fish isn't in season, then you won't find it on the menu. And compare that to the U.S., where I think it's 85% of the seafood we eat has been imported which means more species are available year-round, but also that all the fish has been frozen at some point. Yeah, and I think that quality is is probably worth the trade-off over the variety. Agreed, which is why Japan doesn't have so many of those, like, catch-all restaurants we find in the U.S. So a sushi bar in Japan only serves sushi, and if you want ramen or yakitori, then you'll have to go someplace else. Yeah, and I can appreciate that that idea of the, like, we do one thing here and we do it right. But but let's talk a little bit about the atmosphere. Well, what's that like in a, in a place like that, in a sushi bar in Japan? Yeah, so, again, we have this idea of this stoic, silent sushi chef who's, you know, keenly focused on his work and won't interact with anyone and can't be disturbed. But sushi chefs can be reserved and they can be zen-like at times. But the ones in Japan often are more like a, like your neighborhood bartender. Mm-hmm. So they're chatting with customers and making recommendations and they're interacting in this way that's actually part of a sushi chef's training. Mm. So well, while there's a high level of respect for the craft, most sushi chefs are still totally approachable and friendly. Which is nice to hear. It makes me wonder where we got some of these ideas. I mean, did we just make up all this stuff about sushi chefs being, like, deadly serious? Or how did this come to be? Yeah, I mean, I think part of it's the exoticization. Part of it's, like, a language barrier, right? People are behind the bar and, and aren't comfortable with English. I I, remember I worked at a sushi restaurant for a little bit, and uh the chefs there were big sports fans. Hmm. And so the only way they communicated with me was with uh, sports words. So they'd say (laughs) things like, uh, if they dropped something, they'd say fumble, or if they needed me, they'd call a timeout. (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty great. But, you know, the language barrier must make it pretty rough in a lot of cases, and that makes sense. And, you know, it also seems true that Americans aren't too hung up on maintaining these Japanese sushi traditions. I mean, 
If you need proof of our lack of reverence, look no further than the sushi burrito. <laughs> yeah, or um, the sushi croissant, the sushi cheeseburger, dessert sushi, deep fried sushi roll. I mean, I'd try a deep fried sushi roll. I'll be honest with you on that. And the list Scottish just goes sushi. on and on. And yeah, I guess they are technically combinations of sushi and other popular foods in the U.S., but I don't know. I'm thinking the more fitting word is probably abominations. But, <laughs> and, and that's certainly what the Japanese Ministry of Agriculture would say. And, and the department has been not pleased at all to see these ridiculous places that we've taken Japan's beloved cuisine to. And, and so much so that they recently launched a new program that will actually certify whether Japanese restaurants outside the country are staying true to the values of traditional Japanese cooking. <laughs> I mean, they're going to have their work cut out for them. Oh, no kidding. I mean, I, I was actually looking at this one article, and according to NPR, there are over 89,000 Japanese restaurants outside of Japan, and about 22,000 of those are right here in the U.S. So th this new program is going to review all these places, and, and what? Like, are they going to find these Japanese restaurants or shut them down? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not like they have this international authority, so... The program is completely voluntary, and, and the certification is basically this badge of honor for authentic Japanese restaurants. So it shows customers that this is a place to experience traditional cuisine and not these cultural mashups like sushi burritos. And <laughs> you know, as, as one sushi chef put it, don't get me wrong, the sushi burrito is a cool concept, and I wouldn't tell anyone not to eat it, but I wouldn't say it's Japanese food. I mean, that, that's drawing a line there. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, like kimchi tacos are great, but spaghetti tacos aren't. <laughs> right, exactly. But uh, while we're on the subject of different uh, sushi experiences, do you know that Japanese people are actually better at eating seaweed than we are? I mean, they definitely have more experience. What do you mean they're better at it? Are they trash-talking <laughs> well, this? <laughs> no, there was this study published in Nature, and it, uh, it featured the work of these scientists who were studying this marine bacteria that breaks down nori. It's really good at breaking it down, and that's the kind of seaweed that's most commonly found in sushi. And apparently the enzymes that cause this decay are also produced by bacteria that live inside some humans' guts. So, wait, they, so they only live in Japanese guts, or what? Yeah, that's right, or, or at least they haven't been found in the guts of North Americans. So, you know, we have trillions of bacteria living in our intestines, and they account for hundreds of different species. But North Americans lack the one that produces this seaweed-eating enzyme. Oh, that's pretty crazy. So do we know why that is? We're not sure, but there are a few theories. So the main one is that Japanese people, you know, a long time ago, swallowed this enzyme along with some seaweed a while ago. And from there, the enzyme genes were transferred to the microbes living in the person's gut and then handed down through the family bloodline. And the genes might have been phased out at some point along the way, except that Japanese people kept eating seaweed-heavy diets. So why get rid of something that aids in digestion? That's pretty amazing. And, you know, I'm actually glad you brought this up because... We've talked a bit about history. We've talked a little bit about culture. So I feel like we should take some time now and check out more of the surprising science behind sushi because there's some really interesting stuff there. Definitely. But let's take a quick break first. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Okay, well, so let's get scientific. Which sushi component do you want to look at first? Well, we've mentioned a few times now that mixing wasabi with soy sauce is a bad idea. So I, I kind of want to break down why that is. But first, let's be clear about what wasabi is and what it isn't. Because, you know, those spicy green lumps that are served at American restaurants, the one that mentioned my father-in-law eating, and, <laughs> you know, prepackaged in these sushi trays. That's actually not wasabi. So real wasabi is made from the grated stems of a plant that's native to Japan, which means getting your hands on it outside the country can actually be really expensive. So I, I'd heard this, but I don't know the specifics. So what's the stuff we've been eating? Well, most of the wasabi here in the States, it's made from horseradish and mustard powder, plus a little food coloring to give it that healthy green glow. And if you aren't being charged separately for wasabi, it's most likely fake. Huh, that's interesting. But aside from like the cred in the kitchen, is there any advantage to using real wasabi? Well, it depends on who you ask, but real wasabi is said to have a more herbal taste than the fake stuff that we're used to eating. Huh. And and because authentic wasabi loses much of its flavor after only 15 minutes from being grated, the, the sushi chef generally prepare a new batch for every single order. So, you know, the real stuff has a, a much more fresh taste as well. That's crazy. It loses its flavor so quickly. But I, I'm guessing neither kind should go in your soy sauce. No, definitely not. So I hope you hear that, Tristan. But, you know, <laughs> the reason really has more to do with science than etiquette. So that pungent burning sensation that wasabi causes in our nasal passages, that that's due to a volatile chemical that it contains. Now, this chemical is similar to mustard oil, so it actually turns up in both real and fake wasabi. And because wasabi's heat comes from a chemical rather than an oil-based heat like chili peppers, for example, you know, that, that burning sensation can be counteracted by food or water. So if you think about it, when people mix wasabi with water-based soy sauce, they're really neutralizing that heat and, and, and killing most of that natural flavor in the process. Yeah, it's really self-defeating. So it actually reminds me of something I read that when uh, sushi chefs notice people adding a ton of wasabi to their sushi, 
they immediately switch to less desirable cuts of fish, Hmm. you know, the stuff the kitchen needs to unload. And the thinking is, why waste all this premium fish on folks who are only going to drown it in wasabi anyway? Yeah, that's, you know, it's it's a good point. And I mean, obviously, the big draw of sushi is is the phenomenal taste of the fish. So you don't want to bury that in condiments and, and spoil the whole effect. And by the way, have you ever stopped to think about how weird it is that we love the taste of raw fish so much? I mean, it's like raw chicken, raw <laughs> pork. We don't want any part of it. And and obviously for good reasons, health-wise. Yeah. But, but raw fish, I mean, it, it feels like people are just obsessed with it. Yeah, so I, I was curious about that, too. And I ended up checking out the work of this biophysicist. His, his name's uh, Ole Moritzen. So uh, according to him, the addicting taste of raw fish is actually thanks to gravity. What? Yeah, in the ocean, gravity's effect is so weak due to the buoyancy of water that most fish basically float weightlessly for their whole lives. And the result is this laid-back lifestyle that the fish muscles are much softer and smoother than the, you know, the thick, ropey muscle fibers that terrestrial animals have. Yeah, and, and typically the more work a muscle does, the tougher it grows. So I guess while fish are floating around without a care in the world... <laughs> Those of us on land, we're waging this constant war against gravity just to stay upright. I guess I didn't hadn't thought about it that way. Exactly. And that's why the fatty belly of the tuna is such a prized cut for sushi lovers. It, it gets the least use, so it's always the softest, tastiest part of the fish. But, you know, if you think about the, the muscle qualities of fish, they actually explain more than why sushi tastes delicious. They, they also account for why sushi looks delicious. And this was just huh. fascinating to read up on. So... The rainbow colors of the fish used in sushi are mostly due to the amount of oxygen in their muscles. So in a more active fish, say like a tuna, you've got a protein called myoglobin that carries oxygen to the muscles so they can make it into energy. But myoglobin also contains iron, which happens to take on that deep red color that you see in the fish. That's pretty cool. But what about something like a flounder, though? When I see those in restaurants, they're like it often looks more white when used in sushi. Yeah, so that pearl white color in a fish, it indicates that they were maybe more sedentary and that its muscles didn't need that steady stream of oxygen in order to make energy. So there are also lots of fish that have a combination of muscles that are oxygen dependent and ones that aren't. And as you might expect from those, those are fish that wind up looking, you know, maybe a little more pink. So, I mean, I guess that explains why salmon have that pinkish, orangish color. Well, good guess. I know you're trying to be smart on that, but it did not exactly. There are actually two things going on with salmon, and that's depending on whether they're wild or farm-raised. So in the wild, that trademark orange hue is derived from the fish's diet, not its muscles. So salmon are eating a lot of shrimp, a lot of krill, and and these are, are shellfish that contain a certain pigment that's actually similar to the one in carrots that give carrots that orange color. Hmm. Well, well, what about farm-raised salmon, though? Well, believe it or not, those salmon are actually artificially colored. And, and so salmon raised in captivity, maybe they don't have the luxury of eating shrimp dinners. So, <laughs> so the fish farmers are actually adding a pigment in order to give them that salmon color that you see. And it's, it's not something that the farmers are actually all that excited to do, not just because they, you know, they don't want to be adding something artificial, but also because it's expensive to do. I mean, they, they, they say that it costs as much as 20% of their feed bill to add this pigment. That's crazy. But the public expects to see this rosy pink <laughs> and orange salmon, and studies show that this is true. I mean, that they're willing to pay more for it. So according to this market research that I was looking at, American consumers will pay as much as a dollar per pound more for that darker colored salmon that you see out there. I know. I, I feel the same way. Like uh, when I see eggs, I know brown eggs aren't better for you than white eggs, but right. I still like the feel of them more. So for I some hear reason. you on that one, yeah. But uh, obviously that's a lot of money to leave on the table or something as trivial as color. 
That's true, but no matter what you think about dyeing fish pink, these newer methods are definitely a whole lot better than the old industry standard. I don't know if you've read about this before, Mm -hmm. but they used to slice the fish open and then gas it with carbon monoxide in order to change its color. I swear that is a real thing. (laughs) That is gross. Yeah. I mean, I'd take the pigment compounds over that any day. No kidding. (laughs) But uh, we've given fish its due, so I want to circle back to the science of sushi's other star, and that's the rice. Because really, as important as fresh quality fish is, it's the rice that makes or breaks a piece of sushi. And that's why sushi chefs are so meticulous about which rice they use and how they cook it. All right, so what makes for good sushi rice? Well, most Japanese sushi chefs have uh, they have their own go-to grains, which are sometimes the ones grown in their own hometowns. But the real secret to sushi rice is to find a short grain rice that can absorb a lot of water without cracking. And you have to see the the rice takes in water as it cooks, but if the grains absorb too much, they'll actually burst open. And so what is that that like throws off the texture or something? Yeah, that, that's right. But it, it's not the cracks themselves that are the problem. The The real issue is that every grain of rice contains a bit of starch inside. So when it cracks during the cooking, the starch can leak out and that turns your rice into a mushy, sticky mess. And with sushi, you, you definitely want to feel the texture of each grain as well as the air between them. So to sidestep that problem, a good sushi chef will actually soak their grains ahead of time and check for cracks before using each piece of rice. I feel like sometimes I'm not tasting the right way because I can't say I've ever (laughs) felt like I was tasting each grain of rice and the air in between (laughs) the grains of rice. Well, I mean, that portable shrine analogy makes a lot more sense. Yes, I get it. I understand it now. But I mean, actually think about all this. It, It is amazing to see how much thought and care goes into crafting even, you know, like a single piece of sushi. Mm-hmm. And I know the rigor of preparing or even consuming sushi, it, it can feel, you know, daunting or uninviting to someone who just wants to grab a bite to eat. But I, I do hope we've shown today that there's a real elegance and a logic to each and every sushi custom. And the end goal isn't to make you feel frustrated or uncultured, but, but really to give you one of the best food experiences that you could have. Yeah, and, and speaking of elegance and logic, we should probably get started on one of our own customs, unless, of course, you're threatened by its rigor. <laughs> well, if you're talking about the fact <laughs> off mango, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can handle it. I'm even willing to go first here. I've got a good one here. So it says, if you want to go to the oldest and biggest fish market in the world, you'll head to Tsukiji Fish Market in Tokyo. Now, one of the coolest things I saw about this this is their big tuna auction that happens regularly. And the sushi chefs go there to bid on bluefin. The auction starts at three in the morning. So you'll need to get there a little bit after midnight (laughs) to guarantee a seat. And then you can watch sushi chefs pay some seriously big bucks. I was looking at the numbers on this and the most ever paid for a bluefin at auction there was $1.8 million for a single 489-pound fish. Is that not unbelievable? That's insane. I've never paid that much for a fish. <laughs> I haven't even been to a fish auction. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, speaking of bluefin, it, it might be a hot ticket item now, but fishermen actually used to avoid it, and that's because it's a really strong fish, and it would tear up the fishing nets. Huh. But this all changed in the 50s because nylon nets came along, and it became an easier catch. But... You know, sadly, that's resulted in overfishing. Yeah, and that's definitely a, a very big problem. All right, now we talked earlier about the Tokyo restaurant uh, Suki Yabashi Jiro that was made famous by the documentary Jiro Dreams of Sushi. 
and it's often cited as the best sushi restaurant in the world. So I was looking into how you could possibly get reservations, and it's definitely not easy. First of all, you can only call on the very first day of the month in order to make reservations. You've got to be prepared to speak Japanese and leave a <laughs> Japanese phone number behind just so you can hope to score a reservation. So do all those things, uh-huh. and it's a possibility. <laughs> but, you know, interestingly, there's no menu at the restaurant. It's just a 20-course meal made up of whatever Jiro's in the mood to serve that day. And it's actually a surprisingly quick meal. They expect that each piece of sushi is going to be eaten as soon as it's presented. So so really, it can take only like 30 minutes or so to eat this $300 meal. That's amazing. Do you know that there was a 2017 study that showed that nearly half of all the fish from well-respected sushi places in L.A. were mislabeled? Oh, wow. Yeah, so the study actually looked at more than 350 samples of 10 fish, and this was across 26 really good restaurants. And what they found was that 47% were fake. No way. Yeah, most of the time, fish like red snapper or yellowfin were actually a fish like flounder. Wow. All right, well, last year, Seamless looked at the data on sushi orders across several major cities around the country, and it was kind of interesting to see that you know, certain types of sushi are much more popular in certain cities than others. I was taking a look at this. In Boston, it's eight times more likely that people will order spicy tuna rolls than in other markets. Mm -hmm. Now, if you want a crunchy spicy tuna roll, then you need to head to Denver if you want to be in with the popular pack there. (laughs) In Miami, they're seven times more likely to go for a salmon tempura roll than in other cities. Of course, in Philly, which I know you're close to, Mm -hmm. a deep fried tuna and salmon is the popular one there. And then in D.C., the spicy crunch shrimp roll is 35 times more likely to be ordered there than in other markets. Why do they like that one so much there? (laughs) 35 times more. That's amazing. So uh, it it seems like when we talk about sushi or other really fresh foods, people often talk about freezing those foods as a terrible thing. But this is something I learned in our research. Did you know that FDA regulations mandate that raw fish has to be frozen for a specified period of time before it can be served? Huh. I mean, it's to kill parasites, and it applies no matter how fresh the fish may be. And in Japan, the real sushi masters know how to look for parasites or other problems with the fish, so they can still serve the fish without freezing it. So every piece of fish that we eat in a restaurant here in the States, sushi or not, has to be frozen at some point before. Mm -hmm. Wow, I didn't know that. Actually, this means that sushi is pretty much just like all those frozen fish sticks I used to eat as a kid. (laughs) And that makes me really happy. So I think for that, I'm going to give you today's fact off trophy. Congratulations, Mango. Thank you so much. And if we forgot any great sushi facts, please don't hesitate to let us know. You can always email us. We're at parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. Or you could call us on our 24-7 fact hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. Or you can find us on Facebook or Twitter. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exact producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Did we, did we forget Jason? Jason who?
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. If tonight's movie night is just what you need, make it special with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as life continues to fly by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies.